I'm delighted to have you join this morning for our Bible study. We are looking at Exodus 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Each week, Pastor Neil and I are doing a Bible study based on the sermon text that's coming up this coming Sunday. So as we look at Christ, crisis, and you, we're looking at what does it mean to be waiting upon God? And we see in the midst of crisis and conflict, we happen to wonder oftentimes where God is. So we're going to look at that today during the scriptures that are presented before us. I'm, again, excited to have you with us today. Just a few preliminary comments before we dig into Exodus and, um, and then into 1 Corinthians. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament. It's part of the Pentateuch. It is accredited to Moses. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, came up with the name Exodus, which comes from the Greek ek odus, hodus, which is a way out or an outway. It's, it's said that way. But it's the way out. It's the way for the people to go to get out of where they've been. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. However, in the Hebrew, the original, the book would be named usually for the first few words in the book. For example, in Genesis, you have in the beginning. Genesis means beginning. In Exodus, the Walaha Shemat, the meaning is now these are the names of the sons of Israel. That puts together for us the covenant theology that the God who has made a covenant in the first book, Genesis, is continuing through Exodus. So when you begin with, now these are the names of the sons of Israel, it gives you an idea of what the book is about and where it's going. Now, as we've studied before, uh, the Torah has a lot of influence uh, by different sources, four in particular. Last time that I shared with you from the book of Genesis was about Noah. And there you saw both the priestly influence, those who love to observe festivals, days, numbers, events, sequences, genealogy, as we're about to see here, and statistics. The Yahweh, which we also saw, were those folks who saw the, the God of Israel, the one, the name, Yahweh, unique, intimate, very important, not thrown around, a name not used loosely, the way we sometimes use God or Jesus today. So very, very uh, careful in the using of the word Yahweh, but a very personal God. We see that in Genesis 1-8 when God walks through the garden in the cool of the day. There's a sense of, of intimacy that you have with God. The Elois, which we will see today, refers to the plural noun God or gods, and it's used in the Hebrew tradition to talk about the fullness of God or of God's full range of attributes. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit today. And then the last that we will not be seeing, but the other part of the different sources um, and looking at the Torah was the Deuteronomist. And they use that for Deuteronomy, Joshua does it all the way through Kings to talk about the theodicy of Israel's obedience and disobedience to God as a way to show people 
what they were doing and what they needed to do and what God wanted and expected of them. So those are the, the um, PJED. This is what we look at. And um, today we'll see the priestly, a little bit of the Elois, but the Elois, that's a, a little bit different. Now, Exodus is a book about redemption and covenant, narrative and law. It is about God hearing the voice of the Israelites' cry and bringing them out of oppression towards the promised land. It takes a long time for them to get there. It's important to remember that the covenant promise in Genesis, and specifically the covenant made with Abraham, is one that is personal, it is domestic, spiritual, and territorial. It is a sign and a seal that God had for them. And then he asked Abraham in verse 10 of chapter 17, where he made all those promises to be circumcised, to set himself literally to be different than other people, set apart from them. And so that's what um, Genesis talks about in terms of the covenant. And we see that going forward. There are many covenants, but the covenant with Abraham becomes very, very special. And we see it here in the very beginning in the book of Exodus. For us, the new covenant in Jesus Christ is sealed in the salvific work of Christ on the cross. We're all part of the promise of the benefactors, the promise of God to the people of God. Now we're going to turn to the scripture. And first I'll read from Exodus and then from 2 Corinthians. would ask that you would join me in prayer before I read. Gracious and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the folks who come to study. Lord, I thank you for those who also meet together on Zoom to talk about the study, to delve deeply into your word. Holy Spirit of God, infuse not only in the words to be read, but into our own hearts, our ears, and our understanding, that which you have put down for us, a, a way, Lord, to know you, to serve you, to trust you, to be your people. Bless the time that we share. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to begin in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look! The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites, 
and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra and the other Pua, when you act as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwife said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. And now a reading from 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12. through 12. But you have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Christ's sake, so that the life of Jesus made may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A good way to look at Exodus chapter 1 is about covenant, change, conflict, and commitment. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, there is a bridge from the book of Genesis to Exodus that demonstrates the move from a family to a nation. Note the beginning of the book. These are the names of the sons of Israel. When you look at the beginning of of Exodus, you see that the covenant work promised by God as the descendants from Jacob were multiplied. So if you look back at Genesis 46, 1 through 4, you see that promise made given to Jacob. And we see that now in the beginning book of Exodus. These are now called Israelites from a family. They are now a people and a nation. They are described as exceedingly strong and prolific. God's covenant is demonstrated in the strength and number of Israelites. Just to note that the number 70 is used. This is a a number that is pretty common uh, used in scripture. It is um, emphasized for the number 7, which represents perfection, and then the number 10, which is the completeness um, of God's law. We see that in the Ten Commandments. The Torah lists Noah's 70 descendants after the flood, Jacob's family is 70. Moses also appointed 70 elders to help him oversee the people. There were 70 Sanhedrin, which are the rabbinic court, and Jesus sent out 70 to share the gospel, and that references in Luke 10. 
So that number is important. They put it in there. Again, it's all about the relationship that God has with the people and the generations that come and follow. And, and both that seven, that perfect, and that ten, the law, putting that together. Now, if you look at Exodus, just uh, verses 8 through 14, a ruler arose who did not know Joseph. Things have changed. We're no longer going to be in control. It's interesting, again, looking back, how God remembers. He remembers Noah. God knows us by name. Well, this ruler did not know Joseph. And that's the beginning of things that are different. And we think of things that oftentimes when things happen in our lives, we are not in control. We have despair. We feel defeat, devastation. Uh, it, it becomes the opposite of trust. And that happened to the king. He got really, really frightened. Um, there's no history for this king. Even though the ancestor of the vigorous people was Joseph, who had saved Egypt during a time of drought, didn't know him. So the treatment of Israelite comes directly from the fear of the king. And all the Egyptians who saw the Israelites as a threat because they seemed, they saw how they thrived even in adversity. And in verses 9 through 12, it can be seen as kind of a unit. Um, you see the king sees the strength of the Israelites, the first thing he does. And then secondly, he suggests that they will overtake the Egyptians. So he's out there and he's looking at all these people. There's so many of them. He's frightened. He's like, oh my goodness. Sorry for hitting my <laughs> microphone there. They're going to overtake us and, and we have to do something. And, um, and then he puts into plan this oppression, this incredible oppression to take effect to control them. And when the king's plan fails to subdue the Israelites, we see in verses 13 and 14, it becomes more ruthless, more severe, and their Israelites' lives become more bitter. Now, if you look at that scripture, there's a kind of a progression. Remember, the priestly group liked to show numbers. They liked to show statistics. They like to show things that are progressing. And here you see that in verses 13 and 14. They get ruthless. They get more severe. They make the Israelites even more bitter about their situation. So there's a progression there. Even with all of this, the king's plan is not working. So in this last section, verses 15 through 20, you see the king tries a new approach, annihilating the people by killing the newborn boys. The king continues to direct others to do what he wills. Now, <clears throat> just a note that people are counted by able-bodied males. So not the elderly, male or female, not really counted. Women and children are not counted. So destroying the baby boys, he believes, will keep the rising of a fierce nation from turning against him. Just to look on the other hand, one would never try to diminish the workforce. You're going to get the strongest people you can to do the work for you. Just as an aside, when we go down to a moor, if you need comic relief, you take me. Because if you watched how I used a hammer 
do, 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 you know, to kind of hammer in things versus someone like Pastor Jack, whose father was a, did carpentry work and knows how to, he just yields that hammer, boom, you know, it gets it. You're getting the strong people to do that. Why would you ever diminish that force? You might destroy the females so that they would stop growing up and having babies and making these able-bodied males. That would make more sense for the economy. Nevertheless, the king wants the boys destroyed. Now, for the first time in the chapter, God is used. It's included in the narrative, and the name Elohim, remember the Eloist, comes into play here in verses 17, 20, and 21. And then two Egyptian women emerge as really protesters and apparently people of faith. So from verse 1 to 20, we see covenant, we see change, we see conflict, and we see commitment. It's interesting also to note just in the last couple of verses of Exodus when it talks about what he wanted them to do. Um, The midwives feared God, that's in verse 21, and God blessed them. He saw what they had done and he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every boy that is born to the people, you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. The original Hebrew in there is sons and daughters. Makes it a little bit more personal for us, but um, he wanted to get rid of these people, and this was his plan to do that. And that's the end of the first chapter. Let me tell you, they started with this great covenant. Let me name Let me name the, the generations of, of Jacob, and they're now in Egypt. And then a change, a king comes into place. He creates this incredible conflict and oppression. And yet there's a commitment, a commitment from God, to bless and protect them, a commitment from even others who are not the the midwives who are protecting, and they're probably a representation, they're protecting the people of Israel. They somehow know God, and God blesses them for that. Now, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A little bit about the Apostle Paul has written at least four letters to the Corinthians, a church he established on his second missionary journey, approximately 55. In the common era, you could look at this in Acts chapter 18. Only two of the letters are preserved in the canon, and the second epistle is probably the most pastorally transparent of all his other letters. Paul writes both of his joy for the church and also of his anguish. He was hurt and disappointed with those whom he considered his children. And if you read 2 Corinthians, it's just not an easy book, excuse me, to read. They attack Paul and he defends himself. He loves these people. I mean, these are other Christians as well as as the um, non-Christians and the Jews who are attacking him. He is so beat up in 2 Corinthians. He knows conflict. He knows how things have changed from when he first came in that um, narrative in Acts, when he brought the gospel and how well they received it and how well they were doing. We see all of this, but he's just reminding them who they are. And it begins this way in verse 7. We are but earthen 
vessels, clay pots, uh, ceramics seem hardly fitting to describe who we are, but Paul uses it um, uh, because it would be um, familiar. Earthen vessels carried everything. It's addressed in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 64. Um, God refers to it as a potter. Uh, Job said, I'm, you've made me of clay. I'm fragile. In Jeremiah 18 and 19, God gives a vivid picture of Israel as pottery, jars of clay that easily are destroyed. And Paul in Romans 9, 21 expresses that it is the potter who has control of the clay. So when the Romans came back, you know, from conquering all these places, when they would bring their treasures, they would all be brought in earthen vessels. Treasures of gold and silver jewels were stored and carried in clay pots. Uh, jars were used for uh, stroke, storing food um, and drink, wine, grain, parchments. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in um, clay pots, and they were common. We're just common, folks, and we're breakable. And Paul doesn't want us to forget that. Uh, sometimes we get so puffed up with who we are, and we forget who we are is who we are inside, not on the outside or not just what we portray out there. And in fact, if you saw a clay pot, you would just not think a whole lot about it. It's what that pot, that clay pot carries that's essential. So let's look at this, our earthen vessels. This is to show that God is the one with the all-surpassing power, not ours. God is the one who lifts us out of our powerlessness in the face of suffering. So we have in verses 8 through 12, all the affliction, perplexity, despair, persecution, we're struck down. And then in verses 10 and 12, carrying in the body the death of Jesus and being given up to death for Jesus' sake. And he does this wonderful illustration of, you know, things that are going on. I'm just going to go back to uh, scripture. I'm going to take my little Bible here. It's easier for me. Um, here is what he writes. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. There isn't anything that we're going to face that God is not more powerful to sustain us through, even if this body is thus destroyed. As Job writes, then in my flesh I shall see God on my side. Paul relates here to the death of Jesus. He does this in several ways. Christ died for us or instead of him. He has been crucified, Paul, with Christ, Galatians 2.20, baptized into death with Christ, Romans 6.3, united with Christ in death, Romans 6.5. Jesus' experience in his life and death 
everything that we experience. Paul becomes the example of trusting Jesus with all we face. Paul talks about dying to Christ as an experience that does not depend on his own strength or prowess, but on Christ dwelling in him and us. This is the example for all of us. Whatever we face, we're bringing witness to the life in Christ. Our life and purpose are greater than anything we face. When I think about being an earthen vessel, and when I think about, boy, I'm just a clay pot, a cracked clay pot many, many times. We try and we succeed in many things, but ultimately we will only succeed with Christ indwelling us and knowing that that is a treasure in us, one to be trusted, one to know that it is victorious. Think about all that Jesus went through. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus felt everything that we felt. He felt the depression that we felt. Can you imagine being in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that you're going to a cross, feeling abandoned, praying before the Lord? Oh, Lord, he is, he is sorrowful there. We see the reality of Christ in, in the experience of Christ, so much of what we experience, but Christ so much more than we experience. But we're more than conquerors through Christ. And Paul's example of trusting in Jesus, Paul had the credentials to do that. And when we look around and see everything that's going on, even as we wait, even as it continues, we know that God is there for us, doing a work in us. That's the treasure we have. I pray we never forget that, nor do we forget the covenant and that no matter what kind of change goes on, what kind of difficulties we might face, that there is a commitment from God to be there for us. There is nothing greater than God's love for us. I pray that you go through the questions. I pray that the study, even with the external noises around us, has been one that has been fruitful for you. May God bless you and be with you this day and always. Amen.